Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. TAMAC is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. And welcome to another episode of the Latino Business Report. Today, we're here with a longtime friend, Danny Vargas, who's also president and CEO of Varcom Solution out of the Washington, D.C. area. Danny, how are you doing today? Hey, JR, good to see you, and thanks for having me. Oh, Danny, it's a pleasure having you. And I tell you what, this uh, 2020 for a lot of people was not a good year. I know for me it wasn't, but uh, for you it actually kind of was, because on December 27th of 2020, a dream came to fruition. That's true. I mean, for a lot of us that spent a long time uh, working really hard to get uh, the bill to create the National Museum of the American Latino, we were finally able to get the bill passed and signed into law. It was a labor of love for, for many of us, and it was a real joy and a treat to be able to get that thing done. Dan, let's kind of backtrack a little bit. I mean, 2020, labor of love, long time effort, but it actually started. What year did this whole effort start? So I say it started in earnest back in 1994, uh, back when there was a task force that the Smithsonian itself put together to see how they were doing in terms of portraying Latino stories in, in their exhibits. Uh, it was a 15-member uh, task force, uh, and that task force came back with its report, and the title they chose for their report was Willful Neglect, saying basically not only was the Smithsonian doing a poor job, it's, it's as if they were doing it on purpose. Uh, among the 10 recommendations of that report was the creation of a National American Latino Museum uh, to begin to showcase uh, those stories of Latino contributions to the building, the shaping, the defending of this country for over 500 years. So uh, fast forward a few years, in 2003, there was an effort to uh, pass a bill uh, to create a commission to study the feasibility of creating that museum. That bill finally passed in 2008 and signed into law by President Bush. Uh, to create a 23-member commission, uh, bipartisan commission. I was appointed to that commission. Uh, we met for the first time in September of 2009 under President Obama, uh, and we delivered our report to Congress and the President in May of 2011. Uh, that same year, that fall of 2011, was the first effort to uh, pass an authorization bill in Congress to create the museum. And it took over nine years from that point to actually get the bill passed and signed into law in December of 2020. Uh, and now the Smithsonian is in the process of uh, pulling together a board of trustees to actually work on the process of creating this museum. So it's been 20, at least 26 years in the making. So again, I was appointed to the uh, commission in 2008, so it's been over 12 years uh, that I've been involved um, because, frankly, I think it's uh, something that from a personal standpoint, I want to be able to walk into this museum with my kids and my future grandchildren so they can see the stories of, of our community's contributions and they can feel proud uh, to be Latinos and also proud to be Americans and, and see the, the missing stories in our museums and the proportions that are missing from our history books about the contributions of our community. You talk about 500 years of history and which is true. I mean, Latinos have been here before this country was even a country. And of course, a lot of people are realize that Spanish was primarily the language spoken in the United States prior to the Anglo settlers. So this particular museum, is it going to go back all five 500 years when Hispanics first came to this country? 
So I would think so. I'm not sure if you've ever been to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, but that's a phenomenal museum. But you walk into that museum and the first place you go is to the basement. And that basement, it's set up to make you feel as if you're in the bowels of a slave ship coming over in 1619 uh, from Africa to, to the New World. Uh, so it takes you on that 400 year journey. Well, uh, the Latino Museum, uh, if it's accurate, would have to go back uh, at least to, and from my perspective, at least to 1493 on Columbus's second voyage to the New World when he arrives on the shores of what is now U.S. territory in Puerto Rico. So a lot of our history books tell us that the American story begins in 1607 when the British arrive uh, in Jamestown, Virginia to establish the first permanent British settlement. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's 114 years before that in 1493 is when the real story begins. Uh, so by the time the British get to Jamestown in 1607, there's already been a bunch of Latinos saying, bienvenidos, what took you so long? <laughs> Very true. The, the name of that re initial report was what? Willful Neglect. How did that go over? Um, it was, it made a big splash. I mean, there was uh, a lot of folks talking about it um, at the time because it's true. I mean, you if you go at the time, if you were to go to the National Museums on the National Mall, the American History Museum, the National, um, you know, all the National Museum of the American Indian, which was opened later, but uh, you would barely see any stories of Latino contributions. Um, in spite of the fact that uh, not only was it a significant portion of the population, but you uh, you don't see any stories about our military contributions. You know, General Washington likely would not have won the War of Independence were it not for the contributions of Spanish General Bernardo de Galvez and over 11,000, uh, you know, Hispanic troops coming from Spain, the Caribbean, Central America, helping to stem the advance of the British from the South. Not many people know about that. Oh, and actually, the uh, city of Galveston is named after the, the Spanish governor. A lot of folks, right. you're absolutely correct. A lot of folks don't realize that, you know, some people think that the first uh, cross country or the first uh, cross country cattle drives were the Chisholm Trail, the Goodnight Trail. Huh? It was actually vaqueros and indigenous people and some Spaniards that herded cattle from South Texas all the way to the eastern seaboard to feed George Washington's troops. And a lot of them, okay. a lot of the vaqueros said, that's a long trip, man. I'm just going to go ahead and stay here. And so <laughs> they were actually were Spanish speaking units in the Revolutionary War. So, yeah. Those are and even the word vaquero, you know, have you ever heard the term buckaroo? Yeah. Comes from vaquero. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other story that I have. That's a sideline. I tell people, oh, yes, horses did not come over on the Mayflower. It was the Spanish conquistadores that brought them into right. Mexico. And it was the vaqueros that showed the Anglo settlers how to be cowboys. I mean, rodeo, uh, rodeo, corral. I mean, those aren't English words. Those aren't English words. But I don't mean to get sidetracked, but you're absolutely correct. Right. But you know, Danny, we don't we don't see this in our history books. Why not? Why not? You know, because history history is written by the victor, right? Uh, so a lot of the contributions that Spain made, for example, to help uh, the rebels uh, during the Revolutionary War, they wanted to keep that quiet uh, for for you know geopolitical reasons at the time. Uh, and since then, you know, it's been sort of lost in, in the history books. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of fanfare to the French and, and what they did to, to support the, the rebels during the revolution. Um, but uh, very little is known about uh, what, what Spain did and what Spanish troops did and folks that came over from the Caribbean and Central America. Uh, and that's just the Revolutionary War portion of our history. 
uh, very little is uh, also uh, discussed about, you know, the, the missions along the Southwest, you know, um, so the American story doesn't go from Virginia to the North and to the South. It frankly goes from the Caribbean up to Florida, onto Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, California, as far North as Wyoming. Yeah. Well, and then also the, um, the Latino influence in the uh, Civil War, which, um, you know, France was trying to come up through through Mexico to go ahead and supply the uh, Confederacy. But it was uh, the Latino efforts there in the U.S. and in Mexico that actually thwarted that advance and cut off a supply line or prevented a supply line from actually coming into existence. And, and speaking of the Civil War, I mean, the first full admiral in the United States Navy uh, was during the Civil War. Uh, the, the one that said famously, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. His name was David Farragut, or more accurately pronounced, David Farragut, whose biological father was a Spanish soldier who fought on behalf of the rebels in the civil in the Revolutionary War. So a lot of that history is just simply unknown. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned uh, the fact that the huge military contribution. So actually, Latinos have been in every military conflict since the inception of this country. And if I'm not mistaken, per capita, more Latinos have been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor than any other group. So we're out there. We're out there. A, a brave, patriotic community that uh, is willing to fight for a country who sometimes the country's not overly fond of us. Well, that and, you know, the uh, over half a million, you know, Latino troops that fought in World War II. Um, if, you, the, if you go to the Vietnam Veterans uh, Memorial in D.C., you'll see thousands of Hispanic surnames etched on that wall. And you've got young Latinos and Latinos fighting and sacrificing on our behalf in the battlefields of Afghanistan and Iraq. And as an Air Force veteran myself, I can tell you the Latinos take a backseat to no one in the defense of liberty. Very true. And thank you for reminding me of that name. Thank you for your service. Um, there's so many Latinos out there that have contributed in so many different ways, not only through the military, but through the arts, the crafts, the contributions, the things they do for their community. And with a, with a Smithsonian like this, now the actual name is going to be the National Museum of American Latinos. Is the uh, is Smithsonian going to be added to that at any point? You know, we, we don't know. I mean, it's going to be uh, the legislation itself describes it as the National Museum of the American Latino. Um, the Smithsonian may have some branding um, uh, added to it. Um, they're just getting their uh, sort of feet wet in terms of, uh, you know, once the bill passed, a lot of people didn't think this bill was going to pass, that we weren't going to be able to get it done, frankly. But it will be so, a part of the Smithsonian's. It will be part of Smithsonian Institution. It will be a national museum um, as part of the Smithsonian, whose mission is to, um, you know, diffuse knowledge. And that's going to be part of their job now is to make sure that this story gets told. Now, this just passed, so it's going to take how long to build this thing? You know, the African-American Museum uh, took about 12 years from the bill passage to uh, cutting the ribbon. Uh, I think a lot of that was because of uh, for unforeseen issues related to underground waterways and so forth. I think we're we're better at that uh, now. There's still going to be a, a big fight to get the uh, the location on the National Mall. The legislation calls for the Smithsonian to uh, fully appoint the Board of Trustees within 180 days, and they have two years uh, to identify the site in in the nation's capital. Uh, a lot of us are going to try hard to make sure that it's on the National Mall. Um, and then the process of getting, doing the feasibility studies and getting an architectural firm and uh, curating and actually building, that's going to take 8 to 12 years is what uh, many of us are uh, expecting. 8 to 12 years to finally get it. 
complete. Mm -hmm. Cost, Danny. What are we, what's this thing going to cost? So again, that's that's something that the Board of Trustees and the Feasibility Study will define more accurately. But as a commission back in 2011, we had estimated about $600 million uh, to build this uh, world-class institution uh, in a 50-50 public-private uh, partnership, which is what the enabling legislation called for. That's $300 million of the people's money and $300 million of private sector fundraising that's going to have to take place. Yeah. And... Um Based on inflation and everything else, I'm sure by the time it's going to get built, it's going to cost a lot more than that 600000 Potentially. Now, you with kids and a lot of people out there that visit Washington, D.C., who do not want to wait those 12 years, is something actually opening up, uh, what, hopefully in 2022? Sure. So uh, as a result of the willful neglect report in 1994, uh, one of the proactive steps that the Smithsonian Institution did take uh, and we applaud was the creation of the Smithsonian Latino Center, which is a, a group of professionals uh, and museum curators and so forth uh, that took it upon themselves to begin to design exhibits that have been uh, on display in different parts of the country. Um, that Latino Center uh, was able to uh, get a significant donation from a family in California, the Molina family, uh, $10 million to uh, establish a gallery uh, within the National Museum of American History. Uh, I think it's 4,500 square feet uh, to begin to describe uh, some of those Latino stories and art and history and so forth. Uh, and that is scheduled to open in 2022, I believe. Uh, and that's a similar step that the African American Museum took as well. So there was a gallery in the American History Museum uh, as part of the African American uh, History and Culture Museum uh, that uh, open prior to the full museum opening. So that'll give us an opportunity to begin to curate for that gallery uh, and begin to make sure that the virtual component uh, is as robust as it can be uh, as well, because you know not everybody's gonna be able to make it to Washington DC to visit the museum. Uh, so we wanna make sure that folks all over the world can begin to uh, see the exhibits and the contributions and the stories in a, in a virtual component. Outstanding. Now that gallery is made possible in large in large part, the contributions from the Molina family, they did, what, $10 million contribution for that? Yep. That's awesome. Very generous. Very generous. And, of course, more money still is more money needs to be raised for that, or is it pretty much where it needs to be? I think that's where it needs to be for that gallery, but I think over the, the next eight to ten years or so, as we begin to build a museum, as we begin to uh, do the capital campaign for the $300-plus million that we'll need for the National American Latino Museum will be reaching into not only, uh, you know, wealthy Latinos and, and families, but uh, well, uh, corporations that uh, would donate as they did for the African American Museum, uh, foundations that really care about education and telling these stories, uh, as well as wealthy individuals that really do care about not just Latino history, but American history, because as we know, Latino history is we are American, part of American history. history. Well, how about for those Latinos such as myself that are not wealthy, but want to contribute anyway, I'm sure there's going to be some mechanism to do that. They will be. So, the, you know, so again, you know, we've got our 501c3 that currently is tasked with, you know, uh, educating the public and members of Congress about those contributions. They can do so on the on our website for AmericanLatinoMuseum.org. But as the Smithsonian itself begins to ramp up their fundraising efforts. I'm sure they'll have a 
website uh, that will be rolled out in the not too distant future where folks can donate directly to uh, the American Latino Museum directly within the Smithsonian. And I know this effort took a while. And once again, I cannot thank you enough personally for all your contributions. I know this has been a labor of love. You volunteered countless hours to chair some of these efforts, but it took a lot of people. Uh, and then let's talk about the star power. You had a lot of stars uh, that uh, you see on the big screen that came out to make this happen. Yeah, so it was it was super exciting. I mean, so when I got appointed to this commission in 2008, I thought it was just going to be a bunch of us that are sort of policy wonks and, and political uh, devotees that... Uh, same old, same old. The people you right, the same old, same old. People sitting around the table and so forth. Uh, but uh, when I started to see some of the names that were being appointed to this commission, to this commission, Eva Longoria uh, was on the commission. Emilio Estefan uh, was appointed to the commission and actually served as one of the vice chairs. Uh, so you've had some really significant uh, star power. And then over the, the years, as we've continued the efforts through the Friends Group, we've had people like Diane Guerrero and Tony Plana and Rita Moreno and so many others that have stepped up to to help us. Uh, John Laguazama just joined the board of the Friends Group uh, recently. Uh, so yeah, a lot of uh, uh, heavyweights within Hollywood, the music community, et cetera, have uh, really seen the value of, of making sure that this museum can can actually become a reality. And there's going to be more coming now that it's now that the bill is passed and it's not just a, a wish or a dream. It's actually, you know, tangible reality. I think even more will will step up to to be part of it. That's that's amazing. But definitely uh, uh, congratulations to those folks, uh, everybody that, that put in that effort. With that, and what would you say? I mean, you had the star power that has to have an influence, but you also had a lot of folks out there that were just such as yourself, the daily grind of doing what needed to be done. I mean, I can't imagine everything you had to go through over what you personally over 12 years. I mean, this was this has been a long undertaking. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, from a personal experience, I, I think being part of the commission was fascinating because we traveled all over the country uh, meeting with average people and getting their thoughts on what they viewed as important for this type of museum, whether they thought it was needed, what it should what it should contain, et cetera. Uh, we traveled everywhere from everywhere from New York to California to Puerto Rico to Miami and Chicago, everything in between. Uh, so that was fascinating and being able to work with the folks in 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 DC and government and so forth. And then as part of the Friends Group, I was a board member of the Friends Group for several years prior to becoming chairman in December of 2016. And when I became chairman, you know, it was it was a great daunting responsibility uh, to try to get the bill passed. Uh, I created what uh, I call the chairman's advisory council. So folks other than just the board of directors that really wanted to help and get involved and whether it was helping with the, the politics of it or the, the visibility uh, and marketing of it or the fundraising to help us continue our efforts. Uh, we rolled out uh, national leadership networks in different regions of the country uh, to get folks on the ground uh, involved. Um, and we actually, you know, sort of rolled out a, a national partner network of over a hundred uh, national uh, partners, uh, as well as other individuals that we are able to reach out to. So one of the things that I'm most proud of, JR, is the fact that during a time of so much polarization and division and rancor uh, in our country, we were able to lead a national, bipartisan, unifying, positive initiative to actually make something make something good happen. 
so that's frankly one of the things I'm so incredibly proud of is, you know, we would not have been able to make this happen without having many, many, many organizations, individuals and entities rowing in the same direction uh, towards something positive and unifying. Absolutely correct, Daniel. We're talking about a unified effort, bipartisan, especially in the uh, political climate of the past few years towards Latinos. I'm sure it was very difficult. Did you ever think at one point it just wouldn't happen? Oh, sure. I mean, there, you know, it's like one of those uh, typical things, you know, two steps forward, one step back. You know, we, um, you know, there was a, a point um, in, I want to say in 20. Uh, 17, where we thought we were going to move, move in the right direction and get it, uh, get it going. And, and we just ran out of time. You know, we ran out of the clock is with every two years, there is a brand new Congress, right? So whatever legislative initiatives you start in one year, if you don't get it done by the end of that Congress, you have to start all over again in the next Congress. Uh, so after the 2018 election and uh, we had a brand new Congress sworn in in January of 2019. We literally had to start all over again. Uh, we lost our uh, Republican leader in the House. Uh, that was Ileana Ross Layton of Florida. She retired. So we had to get a new Republican champion in the House. Uh, and that was Will Hurd of Texas. And remember meeting in his office and talking to him about the initiative. And he had already been a supporter. And we, we told him, you know, Congressman Heard, we're going to need you to be our, our leader to try to get more Republicans because we, we had to be bipartisan. And when he said that he would be willing to do it, I remember standing up in his office and he's like a foot and a half taller than me. He's really tall guy. And going up to him and saying, you know, Patri Fili Spiritu Santo, you're you're now our, our Republican leader in the House. Uh, right. Uh, so that was one that was a wonderful memory that I have of, of that effort and, uh, you know, working really hard. And we had such a, a wide range of supporters, everything from, you know, on the Democratic side, we had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Matt Gates on the Republican side. And we had the entire spectrum of political ideology supporting our efforts. And, you know, it was just such an incredible, um, you know, effort. And then we got the bill passed unanimously in the House in July of 2020. And we refocused our attention to the Senate and we built up support in the Senate. And we have had many, many bipartisan co-sponsors. Um, and then in we, I testified in November uh, before the Senate uh, Rules Committee. And then in December of 2020, uh, we were able to get it before a unanimous consent vote on the floor of the Senate. And then it was torpedoed. It was killed by a single senator from Utah. Um, which would effectively have killed it. But uh, we had our plan B. The plan B was to get it included in the omnibus bill uh, that had to pass. Uh, and we were able to get that included in the omnibus bill. And the omnibus bill passed on December 21st on my birthday, uh, which was fantastic. And uh, thank you. And it was actually signed into law six days later by President Trump on December 27th. So it was... A single, you said a single senator? A single America. senator, Mike Lee of Utah. Mike Lee, and, and who, why? Why did he torpedo it? So we had been trying to meet with his office for a long time and to describe the, the initiative that it was a red, white, and blue patriotic uh, American initiative to fully tell the American story, that it wasn't about separate, distinct, and apart. It really was about uh, unifying people 
Uh, it was about illuminating the American story for the benefit of everyone, but we weren't able to meet with his office. So when he stepped up to object during the unanimous consent vote, he said, well, we don't need another uh, separate uh, museum to, to divide us. Um, you know, if you want to tell the story, just add another wing to the American History Museum. Um, so he just, he didn't understand. He, he felt that it was going to be a divisive uh, effort and museum. Uh, so he came from, come at it from a position of not actually knowing what we were trying to accomplish. Let me ask you this. What do you say to people such as the senator? And I'm sure there's a lot of other people who have the same sentiment. Is that why do we need to have a separate museum? Just join our museum or join the American History Museum. Put your display there because we're all Americans. Mm -hmm. why, what, what do you say to folks like that who just don't quite get it? Yeah, no. So I, I would say I understand where they're coming from. But the reality is that like with any CSI show you might watch on TV uh, where you've got different witnesses to a particular incident from different angles will tell you a different story. Uh, and it's up to the investigator to pull all of those different perspectives together to actually come up with the, the true um, you know facts of the incident. The reality is that there is a portion of the population that is not immaterial. We are 18, over 18% 18 of the population today, soon will be 30% of the population. Um, and the experiences of our community, as it relates to the, the, the building and the shaping of this country is, is unique, uh, is distinct and provides a different lens to the American story, an important lens to the American story that has yet to be told, uh, number one. And number two, uh, as we look to remember those contributions, it's also important that we enlighten the public today about what the Latino population is. Over 60 million people that come from 23, 24 different countries of origin, uh, the diaspora throughout the, the country, uh, incredible contributions to every single aspect of American society. And then it's also important that we inspire future generations, right? So like I said, you know, we'll make up 30% of the population by 2060. Uh, if we hope to remain a strong, thriving, and vibrant nation, that segment of the population needs to feel acknowledged, engaged, and invested in our future. Uh, so, yes, it's important that we remember. It's also important that we enlighten the public today, and it's important that we inspire future generations. You know, I, the other thing that I think it's important that uh, many non-Latinos uh, may not understand is that we are an incredibly diverse community, right? We are we are Republicans and Democrats and Independents. We are Afro-Latinos, we are Asian-Latinos, we are mulatos and mestizos and blonde-haired and blue-eyed and everything in between. You know, I, I did Ancestry DNA recently. Uh, I found out that I'm a genetic sancocho, a genetic stew. You know, I'm 50% Iberian, I'm Native American, I'm, I'm uh, African-American, I'm, I'm all kinds of stuff. But that's us, that's, uh, that's our community. Uh, we're made up of some very foundational shared values around family and faith and freedom and optimism and opportunity and passion and pride. And, and those are the qualities most in need in our country today. And I think that's why, uh, at least I like to take the take that that's why we're so resilient. We take the best of every culture out there and uh, we've kind of several thousand years of that little and, and the marinating. Fact that you look, I mean, we're not so contrary to what some people might might believe. You know, Latinos are not a recent patch being sewn onto the tapestry of America. We are an essential foundational thread woven into the very fabric of America. You would, this country would be unrecognizable were it not for those Latino contributions throughout the centuries. Danny, let me uh, wrap up with this. 
as um, you're looking at this, and as you mentioned, the growing population, and the fact that, you know, the United States is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. And I read somewhere, this new uh, Smithsonian, is everything going to be bilingual? I don't know. I think there's probably going to be some portion that, that would be. Um, there's probably going to be some portion, particularly on the on the virtual side, uh, where much of it is going to be uh, available in Spanish and potentially Portuguese as well. Okay. Um, next steps. So the next steps concretely um, will be that the uh, board of trustees will be appointed. It is a 19 member board of trustees that six of which are statutory, meaning that the legislation says it will be this type of person and that type of person, you know, this position from the uh, Smithsonian staff, you know, one Republican member of Congress, one Democratic member of Congress, et cetera. So six of the 19 are already sort of called for. Uh, that re that leaves 13 sort of citizen members to be appointed by the Board of Regents uh, of the Smithsonian. Uh, that Board of Trustees then will go through the process of, you know, beginning the fundraising process and making sure that there is a permanent uh, director uh, hired, um, fighting to get a, a decent site uh, on the National Mall uh, for the museum. Uh, fighting to make sure that the appropriation gets done on the on the uh, congressional side, working hard to make sure that the content of the museum uh, is reflective of the community and the stories that need to be told. Um, and, you know, going through the process of making sure that folks are made aware of this museum, you know, because there's there, there it'll be a brick and mortar uh, edifice that's built over time over the next eight to 12 years, but it's going to be so much more than that. It's going to be uh, sort of changing the narrative of our community. You know, I talk about the fact that, uh, unfortunately, in, in August of 2019, uh, there was uh, uh, a maniac that got in his car and drove six hours out of his way to go to El Paso, Texas, and murder uh, innocent men, women, and children cold blood in the Walmart because he thought that there was uh, this invasion coming in uh, from south of the border. Well, had that individual actually known anything about American history, he would have known that that community in El Paso has probably looked the same for a, for probably several hundred years, right? Uh, and those innocent men, women, and children would not be dead today. So there is an important part of a narrative that needs to be changed uh, and stories that need to be told. Not only part of the narrative, don't you think that just basic education and a better understanding of, of the community will, will help and maybe maybe some people's attitudes, maybe change it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then as I like to tell people, Danny, I mean, as far as the Latino community, we're talking what, about 60 million plus continuing to grow. Uh, average age of the Latino is about uh, 27 years old where everybody else is close to 40. So we're young, mm -hmm. we're childbearing, we're on the forefront. And as I tell people, um, as far as Latinos, you probably work with one, you probably know one, but you know what? In the next five to seven years, you're going to be related to one of us, you know? So I tell people when, what I joke saying by 2060, the population will be 30% uh, Latino. And uh, so I say, if you're you're standing and you've got a person to your left and a person to your right, uh, and if they're not Latino, guess what? It's yeah, probably there, you. There you go. <laughs> and the other thing I say about this museum, frankly, JR, is the fact that if nothing else, this museum would have the best food court in the history of mankind. That, that I can believe. 
So hey, you need a whole commission or task force just to make sure you hire the right cooks <laughs> to be there. Because I mean, gosh, yeah, and that that's a whole other episode talking about the Latino cuisine and how it's influenced America. Where where before taking a uh, a burrito to school in your lunchbox was embarrassing, now it's called a wrap and it's vogue. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, Danny, thank you so much for being with us, Danny Vargas, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, Danny, once again, I cannot personally. Uh, Thank you enough for your for your efforts. There's going to be millions and millions of people that are going to benefit from this museum and not know the names and the faces of who actually made it happen. And you're definitely one of those key people that made it happen. As chairman of as chairman emeritus now, uh, you're probably too young to be emeritus, but but uh, it just shows the respect that you have from all the others to make a chairman of that uh, a group that helped make this thing happen. So, any closing words, Danny? Well, I'll just say, you know, JR, I appreciate you taking the, the time to help us tell the story. I mean, for over 500 years, we've been relying on Latinos to, to fight our wars and to run our businesses, to tend our fields and to mend our wounds, to teach our kids, patrol our streets, write our laws and to share the word of God. The time has come to build a world class uh, institution to begin to tell those stories and write those wrongs and filling the missing pages in our history books. Uh, it's going to be truly about illuminating the American story for the benefit of everyone. Uh, so we appreciate everyone's support. We appreciate everyone's interest. Um, and they can learn more by going to the website of the Friends Group, AmericanLatinoMuseum.org, and stay tuned for uh, what the Smithsonian Institution itself is going to be rolling out uh, over the coming months uh, in terms of their concrete efforts to build this. Um, God bless you, JR. God bless, uh, you know, your listeners. Um, you know, we, we love our country. We are a patriotic community uh, that really is truly interested in making sure that uh, America is the, the best and brightest it can possibly be. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Latino Business Report. My name is JR Gonzalez. This podcast is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. If you like the show, please hit like, make your comments, and follow us. Danny, good seeing you again, my friend. Good talking to you. Everybody, take care of yourself. Have a great day.